I like Plato from the very first day, right? So the tricky part was adding a little bit more deliberateness to the governance of that without losing like what was really working really well. And technology is the same deal. You have to kind of slowly add those things to the existing process and design culture very slowly so that those kinds of tools get embraced well. So I think as a broad overlay with all the operational silos, however you decide to divide that up and define each one of those. But the thing is that they're all pointed in the same direction, which is a sense of supporting the design process. And so it's not terribly complicated, right? The idea is just to make sure that everybody knows what the predominant goal is and then what their role is in supporting that in some specific functional fashion. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. I'm delighted to introduce Scott Ludler and Dan Stein from Lake Flato Architects in a fireside chat about how to leverage synergies at the intersection of sustainability, design, technology, and IT. Scott is Lake Flato's Director of Operations. He brings strong leadership and oversight to human resources, finance, management, and business operations. He ensures that internal processes maximize the firm's capabilities and growth capacity. He's committed to establishing an outstanding business culture supported by a sound financial and operational model to produce design of the highest quality. Scott has an MARC and MBA. He has a diverse background as an architect in both small firms and the world's largest multinational engineering company, ACOM, and launched and sold a startup in the television broadcast industry. All this informs a sophisticated approach to organizational design and operations. Dan Stein is Lake Flato's Director of Design Technology. He has over 20 years of experience. He's a recognized global leader who has helped architecture firms around the world manage design technology and implement BIM-based workflows, including daylighting analysis, early energy modeling, virtual reality, augmented reality. Industry technology designers and vendors also look to Dan for thought leadership and advice including his work to create the electrical productivity pack for Revit and the CTC software and on-site software beta testing with Autodesk's Shanghai China office. Dan has written 14 textbooks, serves as chair of the IES BIM Standards Committee, and maintains a popular blog, BIM Chapter. So please join me in welcoming Scott Lillard and Dan Stein. Thank you. Thank you. So both of you have developed your careers as an extension of working as an architect. I'd love if you could walk us through a little bit of your career journey so far. Well, first of all, I got to remind Dan that he continually impresses everybody with how much he's actually able to accomplish while holding down a pretty challenging full-time job at the same time. Very impressive, Dan. Thank you. Yeah. So, right. I'm an architect. Started out life as a young architect, straight out of professional degree. And then kind of worked as an architect for a number of years and decided that computer graphics and personal computing technology was really taking off, but the rate of adoption was a little frustratingly slow for me. So naturally, I went and did a graduate degree at UCLA and then launched that into a startup and seemed like the broadcast industry was the way to go. And then sold that or IPO'd and sold it and then did the MBA program at UCLA, which got me to where I'm at right now, which is managing the business side, the business operations of 
high performing design firms is kind of my niche. So I've always been interested in technology just in general. I have all kinds of sensors and cool things in my house right now. I taught at a local technical college for 12 years, which had an interesting snowball effect where I had this opportunity to write my first textbook. And my first Revit book was copyright 2003. That turned out to be a good topic to write on. I now have the number one Revit book in North America. And then 14 years into working on projects in an architectural office, and a couple of them by that point, design technology management position became available. And I didn't jump in at it right away at first, but interestingly enough, I decided that would be a place where I could do the most good in that firm. And then now I teach, going on seven years, graduate architecture students at NDSU, where we cover various things from BIM in general to analysis or energy modeling and some of the things that you mentioned in the opening comments. I've presented internationally now with that teaching and practice and book writing kind of under my belt. I've had the opportunity to present in Singapore, Australia, five, six places in Europe on those same topics. And then just interesting, most recently at Lake Plato, I also had the opportunity with our director of design performance, Heather Holdridge, and four other people, we wrote the AIA Climate Action Guide for Practice, which is something that AI hired us to write and hopefully will be coming out in the coming months. Uh, so what was the state of the firm at Lake Flato when each of you joined? I'm curious how it has evolved since. Yep, quite a bit. So I started, I'm thinking six years ago-ish. And, uh, you know, like is super common for a kind of a seller-doer business model, right? The various architects, leaders are all wearing multiple hats and kind of trying to do zone coverage for all of the things that are not specifically architecture, like running the business, et cetera. So I call it kind of mom and, mom and pop style of leadership and governance. And it was about 80 people. So at that point, that's one of those threshold business complexity sizes where you kind of outgrown a mom and pop style of governance. You got to kind of get a little bit more deliberate and sophisticated about it, which is why I was brought on basically, you know, to implement kind of a stronger platform for the business to run on, to govern itself, such that it would enable a much faster rate of growth and ability to take on more complex projects in a broader geographical reach. And so we've done all that, right? We've got leaders that are dedicated in key positions like Dan and design technology, for example, Heather and sustainability, et cetera. There's a, a number of people that are really strong leaders in their in their functional silo. And it's enabled us to really grow nationally. So we got more than 50% of our work is now on the national stage instead of being just regional to Texas. I'd say that the other thing that has changed a ton and has kind of fueled the success more recently is going to an incentive compensation model where we've tied people's compensation directly to project performance in a couple of sophisticated ways. And it's really kind of gotten everybody rowing in the right direction. And we've both improved our financial position as well as our quality of our buildings. So I actually started just a little over a year ago during the pandemic. One of the craziest things I ever did was switch jobs, sell a house, 
buy a house that I never saw in person and move across the country during a global pandemic. But I had interviewed just before the pandemic and thankfully the project load remained consistent and actually has grown during the pandemic. So as Scott mentioned, I was a strategic hire. And so I filled a new position, worked on Scott, worked with Scott and a few others on a business plan that defined my role and the value it would bring to the firm. So then, like I mentioned, there's continued growth during the pandemic, and we've rolled out many new tools and workflows that are already taking shape in a practical ways within the firm. I'm curious how you model out, like what the operational model is and how it might look if you were to take a snapshot or cut a section cut uh, through like Flato's operations and how that enables design at such a high quality at Lake Flato? Well, that's a tricky question. <laughs> so Lake Flato has uh, decades of success. It's not a new young firm at all. So it comes with a very, very strong design culture to begin with. It's been well curated and developed over many years. And along with that, right, probably by virtue of where the original initial commissions were coming from, which would be Central Texas, climate is a huge concern. And so the idea of sustainability was embedded in the design process and the design thinking and the culture, like Plato from the very first day, right? So the tricky part was adding a little bit more deliberateness to the governance of that without losing like what was really working really well. And technology is the same deal. You have to kind of slowly add those things to the existing process and design culture very slowly so that those kinds of tools get embraced well. So I think as a broad overlay with all the operational silos, however you decide to divide that up and define each one of those. But the thing is that they're all pointed in the same direction, which is a sense of supporting the design process. And so it's not terribly complicated, right? And the idea is just to make sure that everybody knows what the predominant goal is and then what their role is in supporting that in some specific functional fashion. Yeah, and I would add to that that there's a balance between implementing tools now that the staff need and then also looking to the future and and trying to experiment and bring in new things. And then also keeping the goal in mind of doing things to the benefit of our clients and the firm in terms of efficiency, accuracy, liability, profitability. And maybe if you haven't heard of this, this will be a new book you can put on your list of something to read. But one book that I really like to think about when I'm thinking about mapping out operations and things like that is this book called The Lean Startup by Eric Rise. And it basically talks about coming up with this minimal viable product and getting it in front of the end user as soon as possible so that you're not working on things that nobody needs or wants or doesn't fit the culture in this case. So that balance of existing needs, just to get into a little bit of detail, you know, I basically work closely with our studios and find out trying to keep tabs on what projects they're working on and what their needs are and and then carefully assess tools and workflows and make sure they're accurate and create consistent, predictable results. And 
ideally tools that we can put into the hands of the design teams and not always have to depend on specialists so they can use it when they need it and repeat it multiple times. So then, that, of course, the implementation also has to be planned out so that there's good training and support to foster success. And then for future needs, we have in our office these different beams, like focus groups. And so we have this tech beam group that looks at future tech. It might be things related to generative design or custom tools that we want to engage in. And then, like I mentioned, it's culture is really important. We want to make tools that our staff want to use. And and luckily, we have a really great culture in the firm of people wanting to do sustainable design and high-performance design and use energy modeling tools and real-time rendering tools. Scott, you mentioned how uh, you've rolled out this new incentive structure that's really unlocked a new alignment with the team. I'm curious what other kinds of existing processes and new processes have really had a very strong impact on operations and the tech side at Lake Flato. Something um, that is particular to Lake Flato, it's not unique, it's very common uh, across firms, I'm sure, but started out as a small firm. And like I said, I would kind of describe it as a mom and pop style of, of governance early on which has grown up. However, there's a DNA embedded in that where it's very comfortable and it's somewhat maybe might be described as easy to lead a smaller group. So if you're a firm and you're like 15 or 20 people, there's a certain amount of leadership and governance that comes with that, right? So one of the things that we did right when I arrived was in an effort to maintain that approach, divide the firm into studios, which are mostly correlated also with project types, as you might expect. And But the point of the studios is that they're a little bit self-managing. So you have smaller groups of 10 to 20, maybe 25 people in a studio, and that enables the studio leadership to continue to govern kind of an ad hoc, informal approach, which is very popular and very comfortable for people. And then it's wrapped up into a, a larger umbrella leadership, which is then, of course, going to be a little bit more complex and deliberate, but it makes it a lot easier for everybody. So it has enabled Lake Flato to grow from the 60 people that it was when I started. Now we're at 140 or so, a little over that probably. But it enabled that growth because otherwise, without dividing into the studios and without wrapping the incentive compensation program over the top of it, none of those things would have happened. And and we have access now to, we have better, deeper bench depth, and it enables us to access more complex programmatic projects that we wouldn't have been able to execute on before and uh, team up with other firms to make pretty compelling arguments for winning proposals. I'm curious, when these different silos, like design tech, people side design, in general, like tech infrastructure and the sustainability programs, when they're too siloed, I'm curious what patterns start to emerge when you, what do you start to see when it's not fully in sync? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I've been fortunate in the most of the firms that I've worked at to have a really good relationship with IT. What I've seen in the industry and talking to people in forums and at conferences, some of the challenges that typically arise are the incompatibility of the hardware that's specced and purchased with the design tools, like getting the right graphics card for a real-time rendering tool like Enscape. 
is really important. It can make huge productivity and just performance and impressions in front of clients. So hardware and software potentially not being compatible. Also redundant tools. If there's purchasing of tools and not a careful analysis of which tool is right for the firm or do we already have a tool that does 90% of that that same thing. So having redundancy, which then leads to challenges with support and, and renewals and that person leaves who's spent a lot of time doing something in a really unique software, being able to pick that up and have somebody else work with it. So yeah, I think that's those are the highlights, probably a lot more to say on that. Scott, I know that there's a, uh, a story that you have about this shift that happened that you saw through or played a major part in at Lake Flitto shifting from one paradigm of design technology to a new paradigm. I'm curious what you maybe picked up from the earlier stages of this where you recognized there might be an, something that we need to do here. Well, I think when I would say I'd characterize the working habits at Lake Plato at the time of my arrival, treating as treating technology generally as a little bit of a necessary evil or or maybe a convenient, a convenient way to produce documents that was in some way superior to drawing on paper. But that's a far cry from leveraging the available technology and computing power to be more informative of the design process. And so it was a heavy lift. It remains for some folks a heavy lift. And so we have many people who are tend to be further along in their careers that are very analog oriented, you might say, perhaps. A lot of drawing, a lot of hand sketching. And it, you know, it actually is a very powerful juxtaposition between doing things digitally versus doing them by hand. And so there's a really, at this point, I'd say a very positive and productive kind of relationship between um, both of those kinds of skill sets. And there are different skill sets, right? People who are, those of you know, who read Randy Deutsch would say super users, but are able to leverage digital tools in very nimble fashion. But then they're coupled up with people who are really, really good at expressing themselves and thinking with pen on paper or pencil on paper. So yeah, that's what we got at Lake Flato. It's actually pretty cool, but it was adding the design technology part and getting people to embrace that and convince leadership that didn't have a lot of experience or a lot of successful experience with that in the past, that it just took the right kind of people and the right approaches and then implementing stuff in a Lake Flato way or a, a way that supports the DNA of Lake Flato without diluting it and changing it into something that it doesn't want to be. I can add to that. But first, luckily, my entire library is at arm's reach. So here's the book Scott just mentioned. And Scott's actually quoted in this book. So this is a great book. I found a lot of value in that for me personally. And as I developed my career over the last few years. But yeah, culture is huge. I think also the fact that the firm has a a relatively flat hierarchy, which doesn't work for everyone. But given the culture, I think it works quite well. There's a couple other things interesting to point out. The firm has annually this outing, this weekend-long outing, and it just occurred three weeks ago. I did it for the first time where the entire firm and their partners and children, so this was 150 adults plus kids, all went to um, one of the 
founding partners ranch, their ranch out in uh, Texas here. And we just had a fun weekend together. There was no mini seminars on work related things. It was just a, a great outing. And um, strategic messaging is also really interesting. And I think worth pointing out a specific product that we use that I think is really great, the knowledge architecture synthesis tool, where you have an app, people can have an app on their phone, it's the default page when you open your browser, just a really great way to get key information out to staff without having to blast emails that might get lost in, in amongst project work. Dan, it's interesting you brought up the uh, Lean Startup because, and this concept of the MVP, like, I'm curious. And then Scott, it's fascinating how you mentioned like the sketching, because in some sense, the sketching can be sort of like the MVP of an idea, architect, a schematic idea. But Dan, I imagine you have some thoughts on like how the MVP can be more effective in some cases, especially around like sustainability modeling with when you're actually doing something that's very tech enabled. Yeah. And to throw a total curve into this idea, two of my 14 books are on hand drawing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm a proponent of all tools, including the pencil and, and there are different phases at any given project where there's a variety of tools that come into play. But I have been a huge proponent of early energy modeling. So Lake Flato has been on the uh, 2030 commitment pretty much since it started. So we've been reporting on our entire portfolio for 10 years. We've won more of the AIA COAT awards than any other firm in the U.S. And I've done a bunch of presentations to different AIA COAT working groups. So if anybody's out there and interested in one, I've done one recently for Philly and New Orleans, and then just recently a three-hour workshop for our own AIA San Antonio group. And I'm a big advocate of doing that early energy modeling, which as the, the AIA 2030 report by the numbers, an annual report comes out and shows statistically that doing early energy modeling produces better results consistently, which kind of makes sense, but it's good to see that data backing, backing that up. How about what happened uh, last year when everything had to move to remote? I'm curious what kinds of experiments you ran, Scott and Dan, and what played out well? What, what are you going to carry into moving to hybrid? How, to what degree are you moving hybrid? Just love to hear more thoughts on that transition. So it's actually a super timely question. One of the things that we did, although I didn't know that there was about to be a pandemic, about to occur. I wish I had known. But we had moved to a, a technology deployment model, which is VM-based. So everybody's you know, got a slice of a virtual server somewhere. And then you know what they have physically in front of them is a tablet. And so every, we standardized that deployment form factor, if you will. And we did it to enable people to travel more easily um, and move between our two offices more easily. In other words, it's the same experience no matter where you are. You just dock your, your tablet docks and all the computing is done through a VM solution. Well, what that enabled us to do is pivot across 48 hours of a weekend to be entirely remote. And we just needed to get more gear to people's home offices was the bigger challenge. So we were incredibly fortunate that we had made that choice to start deploying technology in that way. So it was really easy for us to switch to fully remote working. Secondly, we decided that since nobody's in the office anyway, and our San Antonio office was long overdue for a, um, 
a renovation, really. It was very old school planning from 30 years ago. So we are doing a, a significant renovation of the office right now. We're in the redesign. It's very hoteling centric, very far fewer actual traditional desks per head than we've ever had before. So they would be oversubscribed. And so we've got, you know, it's going to be a hoteling model. It's going to be hybrid. People are going to be part-time remote at home, traveling part-time in the office, either office, but they're also physically in the design. There are all kinds of ancillary flexible use spaces, right? So the expectation is that teams and people wouldn't necessarily just sit at desks. They have a lot of different sort of options about how to work. So that's going to be a really big experiment for us. So the technology deployment has been extremely successful. And then we'll see how our new physical space works out. Yeah. And I can add to that as well. Really, our design staff now have the best of both worlds. They have this Microsoft Surface type thing in front of them. It's it's the Dell version of that. But this enables them to have a sty- an active stylist to do markups in Bluebeam or even use Microsoft Edge to open a contract or something and sign it and save it as a PDF. And then they're connecting to a high-powered computer in the office, like Scott alluded to, where they have a really high-end graphics card that can open some of our biggest projects, Enscape, for example, and and have the horsepower to move around and give the best possible presentation. And one really cool thing about all of this and how it worked out is is uh, Dell featured this initiative that we did on a blog post where they interviewed me on their website several months ago. Got some questions coming in about recruiting, bringing in talent. We've had actually some previous conversations today too about that. Uh, I'd love to know what breakthroughs have you made in your approach to attracting, developing, and retaining talent? Well, retention's good. Who wants to leave during a pandemic? That isn't our doing. <laughs> but no, so we enjoy a very strong reputation in the marketplace for staff, for talent. So for the most part, I'd say that people are coming to us, which is great. It's an incredible luxury to have that. And we also know that the people that are coming to us are, are the, the sorts of people that our style of work, our approach to work resonates with them in the first place. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be coming to us. So our challenges are not so much in the retention and developing and attracting talent. That kind of comes with the territory. Our challenge is really a challenge of geography. To be honest, San Antonio and, and to a degree Austin, they're just not super talent dense environments. Like I come from Seattle before professional culture of Seattle and same with Los Angeles. And, you know, you can't throw a rock without hitting a bunch of really talented folks and everybody's competing for all those people. So our challenge really is in getting people to move to San Antonio predominantly. So the breakthrough piece is remote work, right? So the degree that we're going to be able to leverage successfully genuine remote work kind of opens up the platform for us on a national level to hire in a different, slightly different fashion, meaning that we don't have to convince people that San Antonio is so amazing that they have to, you know, they couldn't live without moving here. Um, yeah. So we're experimenting with that a little bit, right? We got, now we have a handful of people who are 100% remote and will remain so, right? They're not anywhere close to either of the offices. So we'll see how that works out. Yeah, and I can add to that too, being relatively new myself, there are some great programs internally in terms of mentorship, 
I know we also have three people that basically foster the development of the interns to make sure that they know what's going on and are able to get involved in various things. There's an orientation that is incredibly thorough and that whole synthesis website, web-based platform is just laid out in a really great way to get access to everything from HR and policy information to benchmarks for different types of projects, you know, EUI benchmarks to technology and to COVID information. So having that information, plus myself and one of our building performance folks, we do an orientation for every new employee that's an hour long about our various design performance and design technology initiatives and what's available to them and just try and impress upon them. There's resources available to them and also wow them a little bit with some of the cool stuff we're doing. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the working culture at Lake Flato. You mentioned a flat structure, you mentioned studios, you mentioned this new office environment that's currently a new experiment. Just would love to hear some more ideas because I know that you play a lot of parts of that. So it's not only is it amazing design work, but also an amazing working culture. I'd just love to hear a little bit more of the details of that. Uh, Yeah, right. So passion for design and uh, passion for high-performing buildings and uh, sensitivity to context and environment kind of comes comes with the territory. So everybody that's going to be at Lake Plato shares those kind of values. But what you know wouldn't necessarily be totally readily apparent from the outside is that it's also got a very strong sense of the benefit of having a healthy balance of you know, work, professional work with other stuff, whatever that is, right? Family passions for different kinds of uh, activities that are outside of the office. Like Dan just mentioned, we do have an annual retreat where as many people from the firm as can. This was a weird, weird year, but typically, you know, the bulk of the firm plus their family goes out to one of the founding partners, big giant ranch in West Texas. And so all of that, those, uh, that kind of ethos is embedded in the working culture. So, yeah, I'd say we have a pretty healthy balance that is really attractive to people once they start working at Lake Plato and kind of start to get a sense of the whole picture. Dan, how about the design teams um, with like the general approach to testing out, exploring design technology? I know that there is a kind of paradigm shift that happened at Lake Plato. But just curious if we were to, what is the other people in your team? I'm sort of curious about them, uh, like the, the mindset about design tech. Sure. Yeah, that's a really great question. So I'm the director of design technology. We also have a BIM manager, and he has a really interesting background as well. Just the highlights really is uh, he worked at Revit before the Autodesk acquisition where Autodesk bought Revit and then worked at Autodesk, I think, for 17 years after that. So he's an amazing resource. We work amazingly well together and have lots of ideas and the challenge is finding the the time to do it. This summer, we actually hired an intern, an architecture student from UTSA, so San Antonio University of Texas, and have been working on some really interesting initiatives. Our design performance group, I already mentioned Heather Holdridge is the director of that group. And we have an intern 
that has a year-long internship uh, working with us from Houston, and then another design sustainable design coordinator that works directly with all the projects to make sure they're staying on track for their goals and documenting all this, and which really helps when we get to our annual AIA 2030 reporting, having all our ducks in a row instead of trying to scramble at the last minute to do all of this. But yeah, it's uh, there's some specialized groups of people. But again, like I mentioned earlier, one of my big goals is to try and for things that should be done early and, and more often, it's better to get those tools and training in the hands of the teams that need it. And we still have specialists that can do more complicated things as needed, or even just if the team doesn't have time for it, we want to make sure it still gets done. Early energy modeling, daylighting analysis, embodied carbon analysis, things like that. Both of you have, as we mentioned in the beginning, these kind of combined backgrounds in a sense, like the foundation is architecture, but then it's, you found this like specialty inside. I'm just curious, what lessons do you feel are, are between the two of those that maybe someone who is a fully generalist architect might be missing? I'd love just to hear from each of you, like a key lesson from your sort of like secondary discipline and how that could maybe be passed on to either emerging leaders or maybe younger firms that are working through challenges. I'd say at some point I recognized that in order to really excel at something relative to other people, like in the sense of being the best, you kind of have to focus on what you really, really like doing. And so I thought I really liked designing buildings and I do, but I like running the business even a lot more. And so it's, you can, I just don't think that unless you truly, really love the thing that you're doing, that you can really match all the potential that you have. So stick with what you love. Yeah. You know, there's an old saying about not letting yourself get pigeonholed into something, which in some respects is true. But then on the other hand, if you really do like something, you can become really good at it. And another bit of advice too is don't wait until you're an expert really to put yourself out there and get involved and try and be part of the change that is needed in our industry, in our world to solve the big problems that we're facing. You know, and the whole idea of who's an expert is pretty subjective. There's always somebody smarter than the expert, right? So that's my thoughts. Uh, Dan, uh, it's been a really fun conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us here at Section Cut. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-size architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.